Waiting, hoping, praying. Creation held its breath for the arrival of a rescuer, but the eager anticipation of the elite wouldn't expect the arrival of this kingdom coming. One that wouldn't intensify the ironclad, but instead strike the status quo. A movement meant for more than men, re-envisioning the recipients of the kingdom offer. But this greater beauty battered, which should have amazed, offended. A gift meant to receive, refused, betrayed, snuffed out, destroyed. But for only three days, forgiveness fired back at finality, agitating the ash and shaking loose what had for a time completely covered the landscape of the kingdom. Then once and for all, the Risen One rose up and made right, redeemed and restored the radiance of his glory for all eternity and ours. A couple of weeks ago, I went into a coffee shop when you were still allowed to go in, and I was working in the corner when a group of about five men walked in. They were probably in their late 30s, maybe early 40s. And they sat down about three feet away from me, and they were having this conversation, and I couldn't help overhear it. They were talking about God, so that kind of perked my interest. And as I listened in, because they were speaking very loudly, one of them uh, piped up and said to the others, I just don't know if I believe that Jesus is God. I mean, the virgin birth and his, you know, his death and resurrection, it's just really hard for me to, to believe that, which then caused them to talk some more. And finally, one of the guys looked at the doubter and said to him, well, do you believe in Jesus anymore? And the guy responded and he said, yeah, I believe in the historical Jesus I'm just struggling to believe if Jesus is the Son of God. So I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do the members of your family believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do your friends believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Some of you might be thinking to yourself, wow, you are preaching to the wrong audience. Of course we believe. Of course I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Well, then let me ask it a different way. A couple of ways here on the board. For instance, if Jesus is the Son of God, how has believing that continued to radically change your life and relationships? Because, you know, one of the ways you can tell what somebody really believes is how does it change their life? Or a second way to put it would be how does watching your life reveal that Jesus is the Son of God? As I was uh, writing this out uh, this week, I thought to myself, you know, an interesting experiment might be to go to somebody who, who knows you well enough, they'll be honest with you, and just say, does my life cause you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, all of a sudden, that question's more intense, isn't it? Because we can cognitively say we believe he's the Son of God, but how is it actually changing our hearts and changing our lives? I want to welcome you to our new series. We were going to start it last weekend, but there's this thing going on right now uh, called the COVID-19 the virus, and so we needed to kind of address that last weekend. But I want to continue on with our series because I think it does speak to us uh, in our day right now with what we're going through. I call it Arrive because we're talking about the arrival of Jesus when he came to this earth. You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus came to lead a revolution. 
to not just lead a revolution, but to leave a revolution for those who follow him, like many of us, to continue to lead and to leave to the next generation. We're supposed to be leading a revolution in this world that we live in right now. And maybe one of the questions we have to ask ourselves individually and as a church is, how are we doing leading that great uh, revolution? You know, in times like, like we're experiencing right now with this epidemic, you know, a lot of people are paralyzed with worry and they're paralyzed with fear and what am I going to do? And I don't want to in any way belittle that. But if we're followers of Christ who really believe who Jesus is, then there's a sense in which we ought to be leading right now with a sense of faith, with a sense of hope, with a sense of peace, and with a sense of courage. Because we know who Jesus is. And because we know who Jesus is, we know he's got everything under control. We know that somehow God sees this in the big story of what he has been doing and is going to do in the world that you and I live in. And so we're going to look at his arrival in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you want to join me, you can turn open your Bibles or turn them on to Luke chapter 1. And we're just going to look at the four, first four verses. And we're not going to be doing a verse-by-verse study all the way through the book of Luke. It's more of a high-level overpass. And then we're going to get into the book of Acts. But here's what Luke has to say in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. He says to us, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Now, who is Luke? Well, we learn, for instance, from Colossians chapter 4 that Luke was a scientist. He was a medical doctor. And so Luke would have been a man who was very intelligent, a man who would have researched well what he was doing, a man of great learning, and he had converted to Jesus Christ. In fact, he became kind of an assistant to the Apostle Paul, traveling with him on his various missionary journeys. In fact, Luke is the only Gentile to write any letters in the New Testament, the gospel named after him, the gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts, which, as I said, will be in in several weeks. Now, Luke writes this to a friend, and his friend's name is Theophilus, and we honestly don't know much about Theophilus. What we can gather, though, is that he was probably a man very much like Luke, very intelligent. He was probably very influential uh, the way that Luke addresses him. And Luke tells us why he's writing him. He says, I'm writing you because I want you to be certain about what you have been are being taught. Now, why does he say that? That's because, you know, there were already heresies being spread about Jesus and false teachers. And so he wants Theophilus to be ready when he hears these things, not to lose faith, not to, not to be shaken by what he hears, but to know with certainty who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did. You know, there are a lot of things like that happening. They've been happening for a long, long time. They're happening again today. People both outside and even inside the church who are questioning the divinity of Jesus. 
There's just something in us that wants to accept Jesus as a good man with good teaching, but we struggle sometimes to accept him as God because he brings God like right here. If I can think of God as transcendent way out there, then it's kind of like a, a, a kid whose parents are gone and we're going to kind of play and do what we want while, while our parents are gone. And then when we think he's showing up, we'll, you know, when our parents are back, we'll kind of behave. That's how my brother and I used to handle my parents. Uh, but, you know, Jesus makes God like in your face and in your business. And, and sometimes I think we struggle with that. And so the question is, do we have certainty that Jesus indeed is the Son of God? And I want to suggest to you that we, indu, we indeed do have great certainty. So let's begin, all right? First of all, there are four certainties. The first one, we have the certainty that Jesus is the Savior the world has been waiting for. Jesus is the Savior that the world has been waiting for. Tim Keller describes it like this. He says, Jesus is the fulfillment of history. In other words, the world has been looking for a Savior for a very long time. And so that's why kings and queens are appointed. That's why presidents and prime ministers and chancellors are elected. That's why governments are created. It's, it's with this hope and this desire that they will lead us and provide for us and guide us. But history proves this very day that you know, some turn out to be devils, some turn out to be great leaders, but they're all filled with flaws and failure, just like human entities like governments are filled with failure and flaws and weaknesses. You know, we're living in a time right now, it's rather amazing if you think about it, this little bug, this virus you can't even see with the naked eye has just totally turned the world upside down. I think about the Psalms where it talks about, you know, how God holds the leaders of the world in derision. He kind of laughs at them with all their boasting and all their arrogance and all their power. And look what's happening in our world. And I'm not suggesting this is the end times. I'm not saying Jesus is coming tomorrow, that somehow this fits into prophecy. But it does remind us that, that someday the world is going to come to an end. And someday God's going to pull the rug out from underneath human empires and human emperors, so to speak. And he's, and he's going to return. I pray that it's soon. But, you know, this all reminds us of how vulnerable we are. And it reminds us that that human saviors just can't do it. The human system just doesn't work. We need a different kind of savior, and that's who Jesus is. He's a different kind of savior, and he ushers in a very different kind of kingdom than the one that we're living in. And it starts in our heart. That's the revolution. That's the radical life. And he wants his followers to spread that in the world. And then someday he returns and his physical kingdom comes and he rules and reigns over the heavens and the earth. And it just causes me to say, come soon, Lord Jesus. Maybe it makes you feel the same way as well as you think about those things. You know, in thinking of Jesus this way, Tim Keller uses an illustration of an old British preacher. His name was Dick Lucas. And Dick Lucas happened to be reading an essay by an agnostic or maybe even an atheist who was really doubting Jesus. And he wrote this, the, the agnostic or atheist. He said, I'd love to believe in God. I really would. But it isn't possible. I could believe in God if someone would just give me a watertight argument 
a watertight proof without a single hole, one from which there is no escaping. Then I could believe. And so Lucas, in his sermon, kind of responds to it. He says, I don't think God has provided us with a watertight argument, though I know some disagree with me. What God has provided you and me is a watertight person with no holes in him. There's no escaping him. Jesus Christ is the watertight person against whom, in the end, there could be no argument. So how can we be so certain about this? Well, let's look at a second certainty. And that is the certainty that no one is as unique as Jesus. I want all millennials who are listening to listen to me. Jesus was counterculture. So as a millennial, you should really be interested in Jesus. He didn't go the way that everybody else did. He was very, very counterculture in who he was and in how he lived his life. He was unlike anyone. You can't make Jesus up. In those days, they could have made somebody like Jesus up. He was open. He was welcoming. He was inclusive. He was empowering of others. Not only that, but Jesus went after the people that were disenfranchised. I mean, he cared about children, and he cared about women, and he cared about the elderly and the poor and the needy. He cared about Gentiles. He cared about lepers. He even touched lepers, which doesn't work in our social distancing these days. But in Jesus' day, I mean, you had to keep like major distance, way more than six feet away from a leper. But Jesus crossed those barriers to show God's grace and God's love. He cared deeply for those people. And he fed them and he ministered to them and he healed them and he delivered them. But on the other hand, Jesus was also very outrageous. I mean, he said some outrageous things like, I am God. I am the self-existent one. I've always been. I, am, I have the right to forgive. I have the right to judge. I have the right to rule and to reign. And yet, after saying that, he lived so humbly. He was so tender. He was so kind. He was so beautifully moral, Tim Keller says. You just, you know, you just can't make that up, the way Jesus comes across, the way Jesus is portrayed to you and portrayed to me. He indeed was precious. How do you feel about Jesus right now? Who is he to you when you think about him in these ways? Maybe you're still wondering or looking for more confidence or looking for more certainty. Because, you know, sometimes people come along and they say, okay, all that sounds great, but that sounds kind of legendary. Maybe, maybe all those things are, are just legends about Jesus. So that takes us to a, a third certainty. And that is the certainty that Jesus is legitimate. He is not legendary. He is legitimate. He is not legendary. So let's, uh, let's take a little look at that. I want to go back to the passage in Luke for a moment and, and see what Luke says to us in this passage of Scripture. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used, and he says, they used eyewitnesses, or they used an eyewitness. And these eyewitnesses, they are reporting what they have seen 
what they have heard, and they're telling others about it, and they're compiling all these different events, all these things that actually took place. And Luke, in essence, is going on, and, and Luke is telling us, you know, I've, I've studied these things as, you know, with a scientific mind. I've, I've cross-referenced them. And Theophilus, I'm handing off to you the things that were told to me about who Jesus was and is. I'm not just making this stuff up, so to speak. So let me give you an example of what I mean by the eyewitnesses. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 26, the Apostle Paul is being questioned by Agrippa. And I want you to notice what he says in Acts chapter 26, verse 26. Here's what, here's what he says to Agrippa. And King Agrippa knows about these things. He's talking about Jesus. I speak boldly, Paul says, for I am sure these events are familiar to him, which they were. For they were not done in a corner. Now, this Paul is saying is, all these things about Jesus, none of this happened, you know, in secret. There's all kinds of people who know about this, who are aware of what Jesus said and what, and what Jesus did. Nothing secretive about it. You know, when it, when it, comes, to, uh, when it comes to legends, uh, legends take time to grow. So let's, let's use King Arthur for an example. You know, if King Arthur was a real person, he lived somewhere around the 4th or 5th century. But it's 400 years after that that people begin writing about King Arthur. You don't hear a thing about him before then. That is a legend because, I mean, there's no eyewitnesses. It'd be like you and me just making up a story about some character and saying, there, that's our character. It's, it's, it's true, but it's not because there's nobody to witness to that. It's a, a legend we make up. When Luke writes his gospel, he's writing this like 25 to 40 years after the events in Jesus' life. That means there are all kinds of people around who can refute what Luke has written, who can disagree or change it or deny it. But they don't. That's because, as we saw Luke tell us, there are so many eyewitnesses who verify what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Secondly, the information that we read about that Luke passes on to us is too counterproductive. It's too counterproductive to be a legend. So what do you mean by that? Well, the things that Luke writes about Jesus, that we learn about Jesus in the Gospels, was actually confusing and kind of repugnant to first century people. Now, if you're trying to create a legend about somebody, you're, you're not going to write it in a way that turns the audience off that you're trying to reach or you're trying to influence. So, for instance, the birth of Jesus to an unwed teenage mother living in a no-name place like Lazarus. It is scandalous. It was offensive to Jews and offensive to Gentiles. And you're going to say, that's God. Or take another example. We could take the actual death of Jesus. You know, Jesus kept telling his disciples that his mission was to die on the cross. But then before he's crucified, the night before, he's praying to get out of the mission. Remember, if it's possible, let this cup be removed from me. And then he is crucified on the cross, and then he forgives everybody that crucified him. To the first century mind, especially the Gentile minds, it's like bizarre. 
If the Jewish mind, you know, be crucified, you're a criminal. Or how about the resurrection of Jesus? Who are the first people aware of the resurrection of Christ? Who hears about it first? It's women. And in those days, women were just treated like, like trash. I mean, they were looked at as, as almost being non-human because, for instance, a woman would never be allowed to give a testimony in court because their witness could not be trusted. So if, if you're trying to convince somebody of something, why on earth would you write it that way, right? This isn't legend. There are all of these eyewitnesses. I mean, there were 5,000 who Jesus fed that would have still been around when Luke wrote this. There were another 3,000 that, that were fed that would have been around. There were the 500 that Paul tells us who saw him at one time after the resurrection. No, Jesus is not a legend Jesus is the real deal. He is who he claimed he was. The, count, the, the information is just too, you know, too counter uh, what a legend would be considered. C.S. Lewis, by the way, who was a professor of literature uh, at Oxford and Cambridge, put it this way. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths my whole life. And I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, that is, it's being reported as fact, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. That's a mouthful. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. Just simply hasn't learned how to read. You see, it's only in the last two or three hundred years that people have begun practicing what he described there as novelistic, realistic fiction, meaning adding in, coloring in all the details. The ancient people didn't do that. You read the Gospels, and there's a lot of details. Mark chapter 4, we're told Jesus is in the hull of the boat sleeping on a pillow. John chapter 8, the woman who's caught in adultery standing in front of him and Jesus is doodling in the dirt. Or after the resurrection when Jesus meets his disciples in John chapter 21, we're told that they hauled in 153 fish. Now sometimes theologians try to make up things about all the numbers and the doodling, but that's just a lot of detail that's being added. When in other literature of the time, detail like that was not being added. So this is not a legend, okay? This is honest reporting of who Jesus was and what he did and how he was also experienced. Let's look at one more certainty. And that is, it is the certainty of the life and actions of Jesus that save us. It is not his teachings. It is not his teachings. When, when Luke writes this gospel, he says to Theopolis, I, I sought to put together a uh, diegesis for you. That's the Greek word he uses. And it means a narrative. It means a story. So in essence, what Luke is saying is, look, I'm not trying to put together for you all the teachings of Jesus, like Buddha or some other Eastern religion, and say to you that if you follow all these teachings, you will be saved. You will be rescued. That is the ticket out of here. Tim Keller, in one of his writings, tells about an author, and so I did a little investigation into her. Um, her name is Virginia Stem Owens, 
She's still alive. She's uh, only 79 years of age. But years ago, when she was a professor of English and literature, uh, she did a little experiment in her graduate class. She knew that most of her students were aware of the Sermon on the Mount, and so she assigned them to read the Sermon on the Mount and give a response paper. Now, I'm going to read quite a bit to you, and I want you to listen because it's absolutely fascinating, all right? So she had them do this assignment. They turned it in, and she was really shocked by the things that she read from the response papers. For instance, one student, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel I had to be perfect, and no one is. Second student was very blunt. The things the sermon asks for are stupid. Sorry to use that language, but that's what they said. Owen said the students essentially noted, first, Jesus does not just require that we give most of our money away, but to do it joyfully. Secondly, Jesus does not just forbid killing people, but he forbids disdaining people, feeling superior to people, and even treating someone with coldness or indifference. Thirdly, Jesus does not just say, I can't revenge myself on someone persecuting me, but that I have to love them and hope for them and care for them. Jesus does not just forbid worry. Did you hear that? <laughs> Jesus does, does not just forbid worry, but he says, I have to live gratefully and happily content with whatever my situation is or whatever situation I have. Owen said that what's so devastating about the teaching of Jesus was two things. What was so devastating, we don't think about it that way often, do we, about the teaching of Jesus is two things. On the one hand, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't, I encourage you to read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. On the one hand, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know unavoidably, these are the kinds of people I want to live near. This is the kind of world I want to be in. You know, where people love and forgive and show mercy and go the extra mile and don't hate and all the things the Sermon on the Mount talks about. This is the kind of world I want to be in. She says, therefore, you know unavoidably, this is the way I need to live. And yet, second, it's impossible. So the only response to the Sermon on the Mount is, God save me from the Sermon on the Mount because it exposes me, because it strips me, because it condemns me. So the point is, as wonderful as Jesus' teachings are, they don't save you. They scare you. They intimidate you. And that's why Jesus came. It's like the law. It's like he came to say, and this is what it means to follow me, and you can't follow me. So I'm going to live this Sermon on the Mount for you. And I'm going to demonstrate, and I've been demonstrating this Sermon on the Mount for you. And I'm going to die your death for you so you can live my life. And when you come to faith in me, I will give you my spirit. And then my spirit will help you begin to live this radical, revolutionary life. It will progress in you. You will grow into it until you stand before me someday and you'll be perfected in it. That, my friends, 
is the life that Jesus has called us to. That's what it means to be his disciple and his follower. To be following him, to be being changed by him, to be on mission with him. And if the world has ever need disciples like that, it's right now. It's right now. Right now, this is who God is calling you and me to be. In the middle of this virus, in the middle of this chaotic world. And you can only be that way if you are convinced to the heart, to the core of your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we live in strange and awkward and difficult times that test and try our faith. But I thank you for the certainty that we have that you sent your son to live and to die our death so we could live his life. And we thank you for the certainty that he rose from the dead and the certainty that he's given us his Holy Spirit. We thank you for the certainty that he's coming back someday. We thank you for the certainty of our mission in these days. Oh Lord, I pray Help us not to fear and tremble, but help us to, lead, to live this revolutionary life, this radical life, and to leave that testimony that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. We pray and we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Listen, visit our website. Check out Church at Home. Stay tuned for some important announcements this coming week. And I hope and pray to see you online again next weekend. Invite somebody to join you. Or if you can't, invite them to check us out. God bless.